You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, it is your purpose to make us like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so every day, your Holy Spirit is, a, is about that business. And we thank you for that, because without you, without him, without the Son, we wouldn't even choose that. And so this morning, as we look into your word, this is the way you mold your people into those that you can use in the world to spread the gospel and to reveal you um, by spreading that gospel. We ask you this morning as we study and as we interact and as we have questions, Lord, that you would be the teacher, you would be the answerer, and that we can look to you for everything we need, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's open up um, our Bibles to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. We will very likely finish the chapter today and then get into chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. (laughs) But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So before we get started, last week a question was asked about the millennial sacrifices. Um, and I did not an in-depth study of it. It was something that I had never really gone into deeply at any given time over the last four decades, <laughs> which I have no excuse. That's enough time to have looked at it, but I didn't, at least in any detail. So without going into any kind of an exhaustive study, uh, the reference that would have been made was to Ezekiel mostly, I should say mostly Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, verse 1. And it deals, that section deals with what looks like and is uh, a resurgence or a reinstitution of sacrifice in the temple, the millennial temple. And uh, so again, without going into an exhaustive study, let's turn to Hebrews. I don't want to steal, well, Jim will, I, I, I make fun in some ways of him taking so long, but I, I have to say I have a great, appreciation for someone who digs so deeply into God's word that we get the kind of teaching that we do. So you all know it's in good fun. I am grateful for the way we, we, he digs into things. And he can take a great amount of time to unpack the beauty that is buried in God's word. As we all know, there are surface nuggets and then there's the mine shaft of God's word that just goes down and is actually unplumbable. Um, it's not really possible to dig all the way down, but he sure tries. 
<laughs> and I appreciate it. Hebrews chapter 10, if you would, will give us a good commentary on the, the millennial sacrifices that are reinstituted in the millennial kingdom. For the law, we're going to read chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in, these sacrifice, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, for the purposes of the idea of the millennial sacrifices in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, um, the Old Testament sacrifices, as I'm sure you already all know, were never, they are not expiatory in nature. They do not take away sin. <laughs> they were object lessons <clears throat> and continued to be throughout the entire time that, the, that uh, <clears throat> to the sinner, object lessons to those committing the sins, that sin is horrible, it is an offense against God, and it requires death for payment. And then as, as you saw in Hebrews chapter 10, this, it covers that. The sacrifices in the new millennium, as the same way they were in the Old Testament, are, are memorial nature. Memorial in nature. And so we can look at it like this. Number one, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was perfect and final. Nothing more ever needs to be done to remediate sin, ever. Period. End of discussion for that part. Number two, the Old Testament sacrifices, again, were never expiatory in nature, but rather looked forward to the coming Messiah. Those sacrifices were an, off, an object lesson, as they never actually took away sin, but they pointed to the God who required blood to atone for sin and to the coming Messiah who would take away sin. The millennial sacrifices will look back to the one who provided final salvation, just as the Old Testament looked forward to the, to, the, to the Messiah. He who would be the final payment for sin so that there would never, ever again have to be sacrifices. Never payment for sin or, or the, the memorial of payment for sin made. So does that help? Is there any questions on that? That's not, I mean, as I looked through chapters 40 through 48, I realized we could have probably spent 10 weeks on it. Very interesting. And maybe someday we will if they ever give me permission to go into the Old Testament. <laughs> Boy, I didn't even hear a giggle. That was, they don't have that tight of a rain on me. You can tell. So back to first, or Second Corinthians. Last week, we finished up with, uh, I believe it was verse 15. We were looking at the fact that um, even as Paul was talking to the Corinthians of his day, he said that even today, whenever the Old Testament, whenever the Old Covenant is read, the Jews have a veil over their eyes. They have a veil over their heart. They can't understand it. Why can't they understand it? Because the, what is necessary to understand, to truly understand the old covenant, is what Jesus said to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said, it spoke of me. And so if you don't look at the Old Testament as a, as a narrative of the coming Messiah, of, of Jesus Christ, then it, it, it stays a mystery. 
God didn't present it as a mystery, but the veil over the hearts of people who would not look at it as a pointing to the Messiah, and in Jesus' time, pointing to him, it would continue to be hid from them. So, in verse 15, he says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, and Moses would refer to the law, a veil lies over their heart. So Jews and unbelievers will invariably react improperly to a reading of the Old Covenant. They will, um, some will believe that the law must still be kept. And so the Judaizers were traveling around, it's almost like they were traveling around following Paul, trying to undo his mischief, if you will, because he was, he was preaching grace. And they would have to come around behind him and say, no, you still have to be circumcised. You still have to keep the law. And so that was the clash that was going on in Galatia, in Colossae, and here in Corinth. Um, they, some they believe that that law must be kept to satisfy God and to earn heaven. Others who don't believe any of it will make a mishmash of it in order to satisfy a seared conscience. Um, these are the people with a moral blindness who want to sanction their own behavior, and so they must dismiss the old covenant almost entirely. It's ironic that the new covenant also deals with the sin that unbelievers delightedly occupy themselves with. And as, as we talked about last week in the new covenant, it takes it to another step. Where the old covenant said we are not to murder, the new covenant recognized and would not countenance hatred, recognizing that hatred is the precursor to murder. It's what we have in our heart just prior to killing someone. <laughs> the old covenant said do not commit adultery. The new covenant reminds us that adultery is preceded by lust and therefore its lust itself is to be is considered just as bad. So the fact that his fellow Jews rejected Christ did not please Paul. He, um, it caused him, as, as we talked about, great heartache and they refused, that they refused to see the Messiah. So moving to the next verse, um, verse 16, is, is like the light comes on, like they said number seven this morning, and the lights came on. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How many of you remember that? That, that stuff that you'd read in the scriptures, not right away, but as you went back to it, oh, that's what that means. Well, that's really cool. Or some variation of that. Peter. Murdering. murdering. Yeah. The only reason I ask is because it ends up... Right. The difference between the word murder and the word kill. Yeah. Yeah. If a guy is throwing, trying to kill you, that's not murder. That's self-defense. Got it. Yeah. Good. Semantics are, are important. <laughs> they are important. Um, and that's why God so carefully chose the words that he put into the New Testament, the Old Testament, because those words have great import to us. So, when, the, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The scripture begins to make sense. The life of the Lord Jesus begins to acquire a beauty and a, a transcendence that it didn't have before. It was just history. A pretty cool history. It's a good story. And, and actually, I, so many stories are, are, are based off of that, that plot, if you will, redemption, that it's obviously something that that occupies the human mind and the human soul. So the practical result of a heart that has been regenerated and the sheep that has been given the faith to believe is that their veil is removed, whether you're Jewish, whether you're not Jewish. The veil that prevented them and us from seeing Christ in the first place as he truly is, is removed. It's not ever put back. Now, sometimes we cloud things with our own behavior and our own unbelief, but the veil is never returned. It's removed. It's removed. The same veil 
the same veil that is secured away from by Scripture. Now it, is, now it is gone, and the Bible takes on a whole new meaning. It takes on a whole new import to our lives. Nothing has changed in the Scriptures. Nothing has changed. But the believer's heart has been changed, and now the Holy Spirit can work the Word into that person's life, life causing them to become sanctified day by day. And we're going to look at that a little bit here in a minute. So day by day, step by step, because the veil has been removed, now a believer begins to slowly but surely emulate his or her Lord. Now, just, just as an aside, um, God begins to reveal our, our, our cha- the, need, the things in our lives that need to change. What do you think would happen to you if you revealed everything you needed to change at once? You'd spend the rest of your life crying on your face. There's, it's impossible, Lord, and you know what it is. It is. It's completely impossible, even for a believer to make those kinds of changes. But guess who can? The Holy Spirit can come into your, when he comes into your life, the veil is lifted, the changes begin. And so, consequently, we need to recognize that. Um, I'm not, it's kind of hard to, to quantify in every life. Every life is different. But the fact is, if someone claims that they have turned to Christ and their behavior never changes, they're a liar. Okay? Now, I can say that because I'm not calling out any names. Because I, but, but the fact is, God is in the business of changing people. That's what he does. One of the things he does. That sounds so... He only does this. That's not what I meant at all. But... So when a believer, when a person is regenerated, they're given the faith to believe, they believe, and the Holy Spirit removes the veil, their life changes. They start doing things differently, painfully differently sometimes. It hurts to change bad habits. But you know what? After it's happened, and the time has come when you begin to see a a new pattern. I, I remember reading a book years ago, or I didn't read the book, I just remember the title. It was Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. And that would kind of characterize, sometimes with me, it's three steps forward, 27 steps back. But, but for the most part, that characterizes the life of a believer. I wish it was just forward all the time. And sometimes for a time it is. But the veil is lifted, the heart is changed, the behavior changes. Now, any questions about verse 16? Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This is a clear affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And wherever God's Holy Spirit is, God says there is liberty. Now, there's a difference between freedom and liberty. Freedom, if you want to define it holistically, is just to be able to do whatever you want. Liberty is to be able to do what's right. Whatever you want, what's right. And so for the believer, it's what's biblical which is, that is to say that what's biblical is what's right. But what people think is what's right is not always biblical. (laughs) So what is biblical is what's right. Indeed, it is the Spirit himself who lifts the veil, changes the heart, and introduces the now-hearing sheep. Remember Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice? That's when the voice, that's when the speakers come on. And what was muted before now becomes a clear voice in your ear, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
As soon as one recognizes that the Lord Jesus Christ is the second of the, the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, Jehovah, the veil is permanently lifted, and the believer is set on the course of understanding more and more of the Scriptures as they study it. And, and again, and we know this here because it's taught so thoroughly and effectively here, but it's the Scriptures that God uses to change us, not our circumstances. Our circumstances are a result of what happened to us in life, and we need to always look at our circumstances in light of Scripture, never the reverse, ever. What is God doing in my life through Scripture that, is, that I can bring to bear on my circumstances? And so the veil is permanently lifted. We are set on a course of understanding more and more of Scripture, as everything that happened in the Old Testament is related to the risen Christ, the purposes of God become more and more clear. And it's a time, it takes time. It takes time. We live in time. We do not live in eternity yet. Thus, Jesus was able to tell the disciples on the road to Emmaus that the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament, spoke of him. And indeed they do. Indeed they do. When you begin to look at the Old Testament with the Messiah in mind, with the Lord Jesus Christ in mind, it takes on a whole new and blessed meaning and an exciting meaning um, and so the sacrifices can you imagine the drudgery and the work of doing that we're talking about blood running up to your ankles or deeper and entrails and body parts and loud noises and a cacophonies which is that's a that's in the thesaurus next to loud noises I guess I said it twice all kinds of problems, all kinds of difficulties, purchasing the right animals, getting the right animals with, the wrong, with no blemishes, and, and uh, all the, the crummy things that went along with that, selling in the temple. And, and I mean, I, you, could, you could make a whole study of that. But the point is, that's all done away. It's all done away. So, verse 18 says, but we, and Paul, I love the way Paul includes himself with the Corinthians now, because he could be pointing at them. You guys haven't been paying attention to this, and now you with an unveiled face, he doesn't say that. He says, but we, with an unveiled face, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Isn't that what happens when the veil's released, lifted? You begin to see the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's sanctification. That's what saying. That's a that's a biblical definition of sanctification, step by step, being transformed into the image from glory to glory of the Lord. Paul includes himself with the Corinthians here as he speaks to the transformation that occurs upon salvation. There's an instantaneous justification. Your sins are paid for, and you are a child of God. There is no more sin. God no more sees sin in you. He sees he sees the cloak of His Son's righteousness over you when He looks. <laughs> Even those who have the veil. Those who have the veil, I should say, are not included here. Paul and the believing Corinthians have had the veil removed, and so they behold the Lord Jesus Christ, and they see his glory. They see it as in a mirror. Now, it's an interesting, it's an apt metaphor, uh, a good metaphor, because in Roman times, mirrors were not the glass marvels that we have today where you can see every blemish and wonder who that old person looking back from you and that thing is, and what did he do with you? They were... They were polished metal which showed a fairly clear but an imperfect image of one's face. And so we see Christ far clearer than we see him portrayed as we see him in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament believers did. But we still do not see him as he truly is. He's even more magnificent than we see him through the scriptures. But the scriptures does the job God intended for it to do, to bring us an understanding of who Christ is and what he is. So the transformation will be complete when we go to be with him. Then we will see him, says, um, we shall see him as he is. 
There'll be no more seeing him through a glass darkly. But we shall see him as he is. The transformation of a, from a believer of a believer, from a practicing sinner, a practicing accomplished sinner, to a practical Christian is a step-by-step -step process. It does not happen overnight. The, transfer, the transformation itself is a work of the Holy Spirit and not of the believer. The step-by-step -step is a work of the Holy Spirit and not of the believer. So the transformation is not without sparks, is it? So the more devoted one becomes to the Lord Jesus, often the more life pitches curves to us. We were I was talking to someone this morning, never confuse life with God. God is always good, always good. What he brings into our lives is always for our best. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 8 and 28 and, and 29, to conform us to his will. <laughs> the more devoted you become, the more life pitches curves. Christ has overcome the world, and so will we. But for this brief time while we were here, it is a difficult walk. Our best life was ditched in the garden by Adam. Here we have hope and delight, but only in the Lord. And that delight often comes despite the hardships that life brings. The best is truly yet to come, and it is after this life. <laughs> As Jim taught last week, when we look at Hebrews chapter 3, the focus must be on Christ. It must be on Christ. Not on me, not on my circumstances. Now, that's not to say you ignore your circumstances. You bring scripture to bear on them, and you deal with them as God directs. But our focus must be on our captain, the captain of our salvation. It is in him, and in him only, that we have life and godliness. We are, I know you don't, I don't feel like it sometimes, and maybe you don't, but we are being transformed every day into his image, day by day. Often that requires us to go through the difficulties that characterized his life. Drudgery, hard work, misunderstanding, and the like. We saw in chapter 1 that Paul had just come through some very great difficulties in Asia. Actually, that brought him to the point of despairing. Or not being despair, despairing of Christ, but despairing of life. Um, he, was, he was, in a word, depressed. Um, he talked about that. <laughs> but he pressed on, knowing that having his, he had set his hope on Christ deliverance would come. Now, deliverance can come through bringing you through the circumstances or taking you home to be with him. Which is better? Paul wasn't sure. He says, I'm not sure which is better. I, I, it's needful me, as he says in Philippians, it's needful me for me to stay here and be with you, but I would rather be with Christ. For Christ to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he said. <laughs> now, he wasn't putting down the Galatians. He wasn't saying you guys are bad company. He was just saying that Christ is better. So, it has been said that Christianity is nothing more or less than devotion to Jesus Christ. But the devotion brings with it tribulation in this world. And one other thing I should point out is as you grow closer to Christ, you begin to see yourself in much clearer detail. And as, as a Christian matures, they like themselves less sometimes. Because you're better able through Scripture to compare yourself to the perfection that is Christ. And you go, why did he choose me? Was it a mistake? No, God doesn't make mistakes. But sometimes it seems that way, only to the human mind. This beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord is not a mystical trance-like idea, though, as well. And I don't want us to think you roll on the floor and, and, and get stiff or anything. It's, a, it's an objective and systematic look at the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. Peter 
had a remarkable vision of Christ, and yet he said that the Scripture was a more reliable source. So thus the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God, defeats difficulty in our lives, brings us through the, the times that we need to be brought through. This process is, as this verse depicts, a walk from glory to glory. Do you look at the difficulties in your life as a glory? Well, that was a glory. A lot. Pardon? You try to, but from God's perspective, as he brings us through this life, making us more like Christ every day, it's a glory to glory, because what is Christ? He's glorious. We'll never be as glorious as he is because we're his creation, but we will be, we will, we will be like him, it says in John, 1 John. Well, you, okay, well, we've got, we can do this. Everyone has Bibles on their phone. I can, I'll have to look it up. I didn't, that, Second Peter 1. Yeah, that came to me this morning as we were talking. I didn't write it down. Sorry. <laughs> Never bring to your teaching stuff that you don't have planned. <laughs> okay. So, and so thus the Holy Spirit, using the word of God, defeats difficulty in our lives. The process is, as this verse depicts, a walk from glory to glory. As the believer learns more of his own wickedness and sees the great magnificence of the risen Christ, he spends more time getting to know the Lord through his word. He becomes more and more like Christ. Old habits are done away with, old habits are done away with, new habits are made, sinful patterns are destroyed, and patterns of godliness are established. These are, there are defeats along the way because the flesh is still active, but the direction is upward. It looks like today's stock market. <laughs> but don't use that as your, as your permanent uh, depiction, okay? Because the stock market doesn't do what, godliness should do so three steps forward as we said two steps back three steps forward two steps back the progress thus progress occurs and <laughs> and if this progress is not seen then it is unlikely that the person really is a believer that's just a given because God as I said as scripture says is in the business of making his children like his son the work of salvation is always accompanied by a believer who begins to look like a saved person should. And those parameters, what does a saved person look like, are found in Scripture. They're given to us in Scripture. So that kind of ends chapter 4. Chapter 4 presents us, or excuse me, that ends chapter 3. <laughs> and so we're going to go on into chapter 4. And chapter 4 presents us with a picture of the ministry of Christ. Um, actually, I'm when you write the wrong number down, it can really foul your entire presentation up. Chapter 3 presents us, which we just finished, a picture of the ministry of Christ. Paul reminded the Corinthians he didn't need letters of commendation. They, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Thessalonians, the Colossians, they were his letter of commendation. He spoke boldly because he had confidence, the confidence he had that the gospel engenders. And he encourages the Corinthians to speak boldly as well. And again, we talked about we need that today. We need people who are unafraid to correctly speak what Scripture says in the face of a growing opposition in the world. Um, and so when, when, um, when they try to make sin acceptable, we need to lovingly call it sin. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's perversion or thievery or lying or fill in the blank, it's sin. And all of it separates us from God. And it's not loving 
to excuse someone's sin because they think they need it. It's not loving. It's condemning. It's the opposite of loving. Every adequacy that is needed to be a proper minister of Christ, Paul says in this chapter, is provided by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. The Old Testament was a temporary covenant covenant set aside and fulfilled by the New Covenant, the New Testament. Unbelieving Jews and unbelievers in general are unable to see Christ without the regenerative work of God the Holy Spirit in their lives. Salvation removes the veil and results in a life that becomes more and more representative of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his life here on this earth. And that essentially was chapter 3. I see a question coming. No, okay. Any other questions or comments about chapter 3? Okay, we're going to read chapter 4. We won't get very far into it. How about, uh, what have I got here? Probably only get to a couple verses, but let's go 1 through 6. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, and remember what therefore, we want to look at what was, why is therefore, it's therefore because of something that came before. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, based upon what Paul, now he says, therefore, so based upon what he has just said, he here reminds the Corinthians that they have a ministry. Who, who are ministers of Christ in here? If you're a minister of Christ, would you raise your hand? Get them up. Everybody in here is a minister of Christ. Everyone. And he says, he reminds the entire Corinthian body, he says, they have a ministry. And they have received mercy in order to work that ministry without losing heart. First of all, the mercy of salvation and then the day-to-day mercy of the Lord on us for our, our failings. What ministry do they have? They have the ministry of life and not death. They have the ministry of grace and not works. They have the ministry of the new covenant, not the old covenant. They have the ministry of the spirit and not of the letter. The ministry of blessing and not of condemnation. And that ministry is sustained, propagated, and blessed because of the mercy of the sovereign Lord of the universe on those whom he has tasked with spreading it. That would include all of the Corinthians in that church who were believers and all of us. I love the way God's word is so forward applicable. <laughs> I mean, he was writing to a church about their specific difficulties. But because he understands human nature perfectly, his word communicates to us what it needs to communicate 2,000 years later. Remarkable. The word translated lose heart, by the way, comes from the Greek enkako, which means to give in to fear. It means to lose courage. It means to behave like a coward. It comes from the Greek, 
it, it, it comes from the Greek enkako, and it's a strange combination of words to, to fear in or in fear, in, in giving in to fear. The ministry of the gospel takes courage. Imagine, imagine, I'm thinking of that guy who flew into a headhunter tribe and ended up becoming a trophy. Um, it takes courage to preach the gospel. Now, in America today, probably the worst thing that'll happen to you is you'll be made fun of. In some places, though, in this country, it's probably a lot worse than that. Um, so preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, takes courage. Courage does not mean you won't be afraid, by the way. It means pressing forward even though you may be afraid. But we are not, the scripture says, we are not given to fear, but to love and discipline, or a sound mind, it says in the King James. First, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. Today, and we'll, we'll kind of end with this, I'm, you're going to get an early day today, but today, hearts are caving in to the pressure of the world to compromise God's word. Everywhere I see, I read, I, I, I can't believe the arguments and the contortions people will go to to defend some of the most perverse lifestyles. I actually saw a, a, a group of Christians, and those who are not watching this, I'm doing the little quotes thing, I don't know if they were or not, I, where they were apologizing to perverts because of the way they had treated them. Okay, let me address that. We are to treat everyone with love and care and concern. Sometimes that means calling out their sin. And if we do it in an attitude of dismissal and, and hate, that is a problem for us, and we need to deal with that. But the sin needs to be identified and not excused. And so if the apology was there, what the apology might have been was we weren't, we weren't as good and as kind as we should have been when we confronted you with your evil, and it's evil what you're doing. And when you try to justify that evil, it's even worse because you're teaching others that this evil is okay. And we have to stand in the face of that. Politically, correct speech is the order of the day. The ministry that God has given to his children, his elect, is a difficult one. And it requires the mercy that he gives in providing the courage necessary to deliver a message that is unwelcome in the world. And make no mistake, the message of the gospel to those that are perishing has always been and will always be unwelcome. It will always be. But God knows who his sheep are. We don't. We need, to be, we need to be living it and preaching it. Paul included the Corinthians in this statement, carefully using the pronoun we. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Just make sure you in the Corinthians understand, that's not just me. I wrote the letter, but you have the ministry as well as me. He was essentially saying, we are in this together, and the mercy from God on high gives us the courage we need to carry out his will. And what is his will? Well, his will is that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ be preached, that believers be strengthened, that the church go forward and, and win those that God has called to be his elect. And that requires, not, it doesn't require pew sitters. It requires people who get out there and I'm grateful for the folks in this church that are doing that, who get out there and they live their daily lives as believers, ready and willing 
to impart the wisdom that comes from the scripture to any who would ask. And ready and willing not to allow sin to be called good. I, I should have looked this up, and I didn't, but it's in Isaiah. Woe, it says something like, woe to you that call evil good and good evil. And that's what's happening. I mean, it's, it's almost like it was a prophecy. That's what's happening. We're seeing so many wicked behaviors beginning, not just, they're not just saying, leave us alone. They're saying, you are to call this good. You are to celebrate this with us. I don't care what it is, whether it's homosexuality, lying, thieving, conniving, um, all of the list in Galatians chapter 5, any of that list, we are not to celebrate evil. We are to call it out, and we are to do what we can to bring the word of God to those who are struggling with it because he's their only hope, Peter. It has been happening since the day Eve, Adam and Eve did their thing. And it's been getting worse and worse because the population has grown. <laughs> it was confined to two people for quite a while, then four, then however you want to do the math. But today, as Paul has said to the Corinthians here, and I would say to us, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we, everyone in here that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has received mercy, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Remember who writes the last chapter. We win. Now, it doesn't mean some of us won't go down in the battle, but we win. The Lord Jesus Christ wins, I should say. So we're, we're going we're gonna to end with that. Is there any questions or comments? You got five minutes to just... That was just the first verse of chapter 4. Yeah. No, we're... Yeah, we're going to... 4-4, four, four, what's... I'll be ready for you, Peter. Oh, <laughs> the God of this world. Who is the God of this world? Well, it most like... Okay. It's veiled to those who are perishing. And before I trusted Christ, what was I doing? I was perishing before he gave me the faith, before he regenerated me. And so consequently, everyone who doesn't have the spirit of the Lord has the spirit of this age, the spirit of, the, uh, the spirit of death, and uh, is perishing. But he chose, for whatever reason, those of us in this room, and he made us his own. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you have never struggled with a lack of courage. And so we ask you, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, to impart the necessary courage to us to, to stand in the face of what is happening today in our part of the world, to do it lovingly, but to do it scripturally. I say rightly second, but scripturally first, so that we might correct, rebuke, instruct, and care for those who need the correction of the Word of God. Because it is always true. It is always true. We thank you that you have given us this ministry that you have placed your Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, so that we might properly divide the word of truth and bring it to the world. For therein, therein and in the Lord Jesus Christ only is salvation. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. 
Once again, thank you for listening.